Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists one and all, this is Greg McEwen and I am your host on the What's Essential podcast. This is magical. I'm here with Banks Benitez, the CEO of Uncharted, and he has a story that absolutely is worth listening to, an experiment that he began, and any of you who are in a scenario where you want to accomplish more by doing less, any of you that are on a team or work for a company that dreams of being more thoughtful and conscientious of what you do and what you don't do are going to learn a lot from Banks. Banks, it's nice to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Banks, tell us your story. Yes. So back in November 2019, um, we were, I was doing some reading about uh, management practices and came across some research on the four-day work week and began to do some research into organizations and companies all over the world that are experimenting with a four-day work week. I brought this concept to our executive team at the end of 2019 and said, I think 2020 should be the year where we experiment um, and try out and see if a four-day work week might work for us. What were the companies that you had learned about? Microsoft Japan is one, others? Yes. Uh, Microsoft Japan had released some research in November of last year, just about this time, I guess, uh, around the four-day work week themselves. And then Perpetual Guardian, a New Zealand-based company, has been doing the four-day work week for a while. And so they had some literature out there. And then there were s small other examples and research in a few different places about non-traditional work weeks. Um, and so I began to assemble just a, a list of, of resources and articles and researchers in this space. As an organization, we've always been really curious about how we can design the ways that we work and collaborate to be really human-centered, be driven by values, and to be rooted in trust for our team. And so the four-day work week was a curiosity of mine that started at the end of last year. And I sort of understand why you were curious about that, you, because you're thoughtful, but, but really why? Why bother looking into a four-day work week? What, what was the pull for you? I think that there's, I mean, this one question of who chose a five-day work week? Who chose 40 hours per week of work? Some of these norms and the status quo that you know, I just have accepted growing up um, in the U.S. and thinking, okay, well, I guess this is the way that you work Monday through Friday. Maybe you work 40 hours, maybe you work more, whatever. And I think as an organization, we have always tried to sort of challenge the status quo. And, and so for me, I was interested in that. And of course, I know just observing my own performance that the number of hours that I work doesn't always contribute to the outcomes that I produce, that there are times when I am really producing at a much higher level, um, when I'm more focused, when I'm more disciplined, when I'm focused on the right things. You know, we, we don't pay our team to just sit in their seat, sit at their desk, sit at their home office and in a 2020 COVID reality just for hours. We, we hire them, retain them, compensate them to deliver results. And I've known that for myself personally, that delivering results is not always a function of hours worked. And so I was really curious about 
exploring the decoupling, the possible decoupling between full-time and full contribution. And the hypothesis that we used when entering this experiment was, is it possible to have 100% contribution at 80% hours for 100% pay? And that was the experiment we launched for the summer, for the three months from June, July, and August of 2020. And then essentialism played a role in this. And I don't want to be presumptuous in saying that, but tell me how that played a role and why you included that in your experiment. Yeah. So I I had read Essentialism, your book back in 2000, and I think it was 15, um, Mm. to be quite profound and helpful for me. I have always considered myself to be a brute force entrepreneur. I'm a Mm. hustler. I'm somebody that just is, I will get it done you know, the, there are no trade-offs. I will do both. It's not an or, it's an and. All of the things that are non-essential, I excel at. And for a long time, that was my operating model as a, as a, as a leader, as an entrepreneur. Um, and in some ways, as a, as a, for a startup um, and for the company that I lead, that permeated throughout our culture. But I knew that, of course, just this brute force entrepreneurship was, was not a way to successfully grow a larger organization in the early days of COVID, there was this moment where we began to wonder, is this the best time to do this or the worst time to really move to a, to a four-day, 32-hour work week? But we knew that things were hard for so many people. Mental health was a strain. And so we decided, no, this is actually the best time. Obviously, the organization was going through challenges and shifts, and we had moved to be fully remote. But I decided it's not the worst time. It's the best time to do it. Um, and so in early April, our executive team got together and we decided, okay, we will announce to the team in the beginning of May that we're going to move to a four-day work week starting in June. And we will spend the month of May as a team really assessing all of the ways that we can optimize our work, restructure our week, and grow more essential. And so I don't know if I've shared this with you. It certainly is not something that I've that's been anywhere where we've posted or been published in some of the press we received, but I ordered a copy of your book for every member of the team. I inscribed each of them individually to our team in the opening section of the book and had a quote from a, from a poet um, about living a full audacious life uh, outside of work. And then we shipped them off to the team and said they cannot open the package until the day uh, that we made this announcement over Zoom, of course, because we were all remote. And so we made this announcement in early May and said, hey, we really trust and believe in this team. This team is extremely hardworking. We know there's a lot going on. We're launching the three-month experiment with a third-party evaluator to determine how the four-day work week might work. You know, 100% pay, 80% hours, 100% contribution. And we're announcing this in the beginning of May because we want to spend the next month really digging into how we can grow more essential in our work. At that point, everyone opened up their packages. They had your book. And we did a month-long book club as a team going through chapters in essentialism and talking about how they showed up um, and how we might apply the principles of it into, into our work. And I will say, it has many pieces in your book have become part of the uncharted vocabulary and our ways that we now are recentering conversations, clarifying the purposes of meetings, talking about how we prioritize um, and how we select 
how we deprioritize. Um, and so very much, I think if we would have announced the four-day work week on the day that it started without any of this month of preparation and reflection and going through your book, we would have been far less successful. But that month ahead of time for us to sharpen our ability to be essential was itself essential. You were, I think, preparing people's minds and hearts for the possibility of doing something really different. And my experience with essentialism has surprised me in teaching it to other people. It's that essentialism is more countercultural than I realized it was when I wrote it. <laughs> Interesting. And so I find that it's almost like a new language. And you use that word language. But but I think it's like, you know, literally like learning French or learning Spanish, that that if you try to be an essentialist on your own in a non-essentialist country, so to speak, then people aren't going to know what happened to you. And this is one of the fascinating things about your example and your case study is what you did to expand it beyond yourself. You'd read it years before. That had settled in with you. You'd wrestled with those ideas. But then you also go through this process of getting everybody else on board. I wonder if you could go into a little more detail about what you did in that book club for that month. How did you approach it really tangibly so that for somebody else who says, I want to create an essentialist culture around me rather than being the lone essentialist in the room, yeah, they could be able to do the same. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's there was a couple things that we did. Um, we had a weekly book club. We broke up your book into sections and went through it discussing various chapters. All of our department heads met up with their teams to explore how they restructure team meetings, goal setting, department coordination, and collaboration. So at a project team and department team level, we empowered our directors to really come in and say, how do we expect to get all of our work done on four days, knowing that their work streams and their meeting schedules and the ways that they work differed across those teams? So it was broken out into those department teams for those teams to reflect on not only the book, but also just thinking about the cadence of work. We then we then created a, a tool that uh, was a, as a document for each person to reflect on their own style of work, their own routine. One of the things that I appreciated from your book, uh, I think it's a later chapter talking about creating a routine where the essential becomes default. When it comes to work, it's very easy for the inbox to become default or for you know the fight, fighting the fires or the things that pop up over the week to be the default. And so how do we restructure that? And that's very personal for people. You know, they they may be caring for kids and have a family. They may be thinking about how do I prioritize my week such that the essential becomes the default from a routine perspective. So each person did a self-assessment, individual reflection on that to make sure that they were thinking about their own specific weeks. Um, it was just a simple framework tool that we provided uh, the team to go through. And then we we spent some time as a team hosting internal forums on topics about how to optimize meetings. How do we maintain our culture? How do we block time and plan throughout the course of the week so that we can get the most important work done? And we arrived at 
some decisions around some time that was heads down time where we wouldn't bother anybody else on the team, where we'd be really focused on getting the essential work done um, and some other routines and ways for us to report out on progress. And so I think I was the one that made the decision to launch this experiment, but there were thousands of decisions that our team led in terms of how to make it work. And I think it was important for the how decisions to be owned by the team themselves. I mean, first of all, your decision to run the experiment itself is one decision that makes a thousand. Yes. Um, it was a, a really clear, essential intent. We are wanting to make a shift. It's a very concrete shift. Uh, we've never done it before. It's an early process. It's, it's the case studies we've read don't give every detail for our circumstance, but you made that clear decision and then involved everybody in the how to do it. Right. Go back for a moment, if you don't mind, to just even the book club part of this. When you say you broke up parts of the book, how did you do that? You took, did you do one section per week? Did, just give me like, you know, fly on the wall. How did you actually do it? Yeah, so we have to go back and look specifically, but we would do three to four chapters a week based on the sections that were in the book. And so we would all we would all read it. Everyone had, had their copy, of course. We would come in and then it was loosely facilitated over the course of an hour every Monday where the team showed up and we said, okay, I'm taking this from this section and I think we can apply it this way. Or I'm wrestling through this topic that you know Greg has outlined. How do you think this will work? And so it was based off of those sections and then from there, I was curious about, and again, I didn't, I didn't lead the book club. It was very much one that different weeks people would, would sort of loosely facilitate. Tell us more about, you know, did, were there questions that people came with or was it really just read it, come talk? So it was very much read it, come talk. I, I, I'm a, a bit of a bit of a nerd myself and I, uh, I've created a, which I can hap happily share with you, a summary of your book into a six-page document that has essentially, essentially, the, the, the essence of each chapter. But I think what was interesting for me was the conversations that happened outside of the book club. So for example, I have an amazing executive assistant that I work with. And I think one of our conversations that we had was this point of in a, in a hierarchy of an organization, are there some people that have the privilege of essentialism and there are others that do not, where they have to be, be more of a responding to needs and firefighting and dealing with things. And so my conversation with Lindy was, was really helpful because we began to talk about, okay, it's not just about her role being non-essentialist, but actually what are the ways that she and I can partner together what are the ways that she can actually push back and tell me, no, actually, I don't have time for that this week. You're asking me to do something that if you do, if I say yes to that, I'll have to deprioritize something else. And so the essentialism was a gateway into a greater peership conversation and partnership conversation about how she and I as a team, as an executive assistant CEO team, partner together to get the most essential work done. I mean, this is exactly what it's supposed to be. If essentialism is incorporating a new language, it exists so that you can then 
because of that new language, have a new conversation. And that's what you're literally describing as the language was introduced. Suddenly, the discomfort gives way to conversation. Well, let's talk about it. Is, is, is it okay for me to push back? Uh, aren't I supposed to just say yes to everything you ask? Isn't that like literally my job description for, uh, I think, Lindy, you said? Yes. And did you come to any tangible new arrangements? I mean, I can see that talking about it at all is progress, but did you come to anything that you, that now, if we had Lindy on here, she would say, well, now I feel, you know, more empowered in this way or things have changed in that way? Yeah, I mean, there there were a number of tangible decisions that we made across the team um, in terms of a variety of things, structuring our week, all of that. One was being really clear about what, if I asked for something, we need to focus on one thing, what would be deprioritized as a result? So I think she that has grown into our conversations since then about, as you've talked about, we have lived in a non-essentialist country of there is no such thing as a trade-off, but with the reality is, no, no, there are trade-offs. And so I think a conversation around trade-offs has become a pillar of our dialogue, she and I. The other one is around deadlines and timelines. And so oftentimes it does feel like, okay, just quickly do it as fast as you can. But we've begun to understand, all right, let's say, when does it actually need to be done? And therefore, I'm going to put it off or, or deprioritize it for the next three or four days because I know it's not due until next week and I know I have time to do it then. It, to me, it's so brilliant what you're describing. So many people are stuck in a hierarchical environment, especially thinking there are only two options, the polite yes on the one hand and the rude no on the other. And of course, because of the hierarchy, they think their only real option is the polite yes, which means that all their higher power reasoning and all of the potential collaboration and conversation is just cut off at the very beginning. And what you're describing is permission now and space to have a conversation. So I think we, we realized that, as many organizations have, meetings can, be, can dominate and can really be non-essential activities. And so we put, set our gaze on our meetings and really asked ourselves questions about what is the purpose of this meeting? Who are the participants? What are the outcomes? What are we trying to achieve? In your book, you talk about this idea of sort of a re reverse pilot where if you don't do anything, is anything missing at the, at the end of it? And so we began to look at questions around the importance of, of our meetings and we shorten meetings, we cut meetings out. We oftentimes would put pressure on the agenda ahead of time. And if there wasn't an agenda for a meeting that was a standing meeting, we would just eliminate it. And so from a meeting perspective, I think we became much more judicious about the purpose of meetings. That was, and we can go into a whole conversation around that. That was one piece. Let, let's just pause on that for a second. Judicious in whether to have the meeting, judicious about what the purpose of the meeting is, who should be in the meeting, what the outcome is of the meeting, these are things I suppose most people have heard before, but you implemented it, you took it seriously. Uh, were there any specific tools or learnings about that process that would be helpful for somebody else who wants to try and create an essentialist culture in their organization? Yeah, you know, I think we're still a work in progress on on all of this, Greg. We're still very much a work in progress. Yep. 
I think many of us, you know, are have been in the professional world, have been in sort of corporate environments, have done all of this stuff. And so we're trying to unlearn habits. And that includes me as well. We have begun to pilot a meeting checklist that goes through a question of um, meetings are not solutions looking for problems. What is the problem the meeting is solving? So really trying to think about the purpose of the meeting and then therefore what are the outcomes that the meeting will yield? Who are the people that should be involved in the meeting? And then the approach to the meeting. So what is the path to the outcomes that are identified? Um, So do people need context ahead of time? What prep work do people need? Um, Is there a crisp purpose of the meeting? Is there an agenda? Um, Are there roles in the meeting, like note taker or somebody who's who's assigning next steps. So we've tried to become a bit more thoughtful about all of that. And I think in many, many times, we have canceled so many meetings um, since we started this experiment, uh, which I think is great. What percentage of meetings do you feel like you've eliminated? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Um, and I, I only, I myself am in a, a small fraction of our team's collective meetings. I would say that on a weekly basis of the meetings that are on my calendar, that are standing meetings, I'll cut out 20 to 25% of them because we're good this week, or we don't actually need to check in, or we can coordinate over project management software and tools that way. When you did that first month, you're preparing minds, you're reading, you're having conversations. At some point, you brought in an outside vendor to actually measure productivity, uh, other metrics you can share with us. When did you bring that external group in? Before we announced the experiment to the team. So we had hired a third-party data evaluation group in April before we announced it to the team because we said, look, we're launching an experiment. This experiment is simply... We have a hypothesis um, and the hypothesis we want to test and validate. And we want some help from someone who really knows how to do this, who also doesn't have a vested interest in having Fridays off, which of course our team might have, right? And so we hired this third-party evaluator. Um, They created a quantitative and qualitative process over the course of the summer that tested a couple of hypotheses and questions. And so one of them was, is it possible for us to maintain both the quantity and the quality of our work output with reduced hours? How does moving to a four-day work week change our workplace dynamics? How does switching to a four-day work week affect team members' lives outside of work? We knew that for our organization, we produce best when we're in a rested, mentally healthy place. And so I am very interested in how do we create the conditions where our team can be mentally healthy, can be fully present, can be very focused. To me, it's quite a thorough process that you went through in terms of real learning and development. You know, you actually assess, pre-assess it. Give me the next part of the journey. Yeah, so the third-party evaluator took baseline data in the month of May, hours worked, mental health contribution. Again, happy to share their complete survey, their baseline survey of what they did. They then did a brief survey at the end of June. So one month in 
we wanted to evaluate how the team was doing. This was less in terms of making a decision about if we would make this permanent company policy, which we ultimately did after the final data at the end of August. But the June checkpoint was more about how is what's working, what's not working. It was more of a way for us as leadership and management to optimize and to have subsequent conversations. Mm. A check-in and what tweaks need to be made. What did you learn at that check-in? Yeah. So we, we learned some interesting things. And I think it Again, I think we are, we are still very early in our journey on this. Most of the insights were qualitative um, about people feeling greater rest and mental health. And then, of course, much clearer thinking around how to prioritize. Um, many people had shifted how they structured their weeks, blocking off time throughout the weeks to really focus on key priorities, protecting blocks of time. We had good support from our clients and customers. So that's a whole other conversation. Happy to go into at some point about the optics of this externally in a a business environment. Um, There were also some challenges early on. I think that the the team felt like we were engineering each week down to the minute and there wasn't enough room for the unexpected. And so over the end of June, we began to talk about as a team, how do we introduce some buffer time? That was a question that came up at the end of our of our at the end of June through this through this work. I can just imagine, by the way, I can imagine that in taking a day out, you're reducing eight hours at least now, and you say, okay, well, let's solve it through efficiency. Let's just pack each right. hour right. that we are working back to back. And suddenly you realize that's quite a stressful way to live those four days. Uh, because unexpected things inevitably come up, and then you're behind all the time, and 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 so you 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 address this how? Yeah, I think this is a critical point. That if we are going to go, if we're going to reduce the hours worked by twenty percent, it does not come through efficiency. It comes through essentialism. So efficiency, we might be able to optimize what three four percent. 5% maybe, but to get to 20%, it requires really deprioritizing things, understanding what are the biggest obstacles that stand in the way towards progress and removing those obstacles as you talk about. And that really came from, from an executive level, leadership level, communicating to our team. These are our priorities. These are our metrics. This is how we're successful. And I think in some ways, this four-day work week and this principle of accept of essentialism is reflecting back into the ways where I have not been as strategically clear about metrics and goals as I need to be. And I think about that uh, in in the book. There's a there's a an image of a circle with arrows going out in all different directions, and then that sort of articulating or illustrating what non-essentialism looks like. And in some ways, oftentimes. That's what strategic planning looks like. We must have 17 priorities. They, they're all really important. Um, but having a strategic essential intent changes the focus and helps people to deprioritize in a way where it's not just about becoming more efficient. It's really about saying, okay, we're only in the business of doing a few key things very well. The other thing I'll just quickly mention after the first mo- first month of June was... 
I think our team felt like, okay, everyone's really focused. We're trying to be essential. We're prioritizing the most important work. Is it okay for me to ask for help from people around me? Can I actually go reach out to someone and say, I love your thought partnership on this thing? Is that going to be a distraction from their goals? And so initially there was some fear amongst our team about maybe this will actually not lead us to collaborate more because perhaps we should just be focused on the work. Um, and, and I think that was something that we were paid a lot of attention to because we knew that we really needed to, uh, to find ways for our team to continue to support each other. And so by the end of the experiment, actually, and to my surprise, the support of coworkers or support from coworkers actually increased over the baseline. And I think it was because we began to talk about how we need to hold the space to show up for our team and to help them because that itself is very essential. Um, you know, it might be 15 minute conversation or a meeting might save hours of time later on. And so we began to try to change this conversation around asking for help is an essential act. I think that's interesting for a few reasons. One, that there was this order of operations that at first it had almost a chilling effect where you said, okay, I'm just, I know what's important for me and I've got to get my head down and I don't want to distract other people. I don't want to hijack their day. And I can see I can see both the advantage, but also a clear disadvantage there. But I, I find it interesting that it evolved into, well, this is my take on it, but a more disciplined collaboration. I do need to collaborate, but I'm going to do it purposefully. And what would you have to deprioritize to collaborate with me? And again, this sort of collapses the power dynamics within organizational structures because not only are you asking for help, you're giving the person you're asking for help the agency to say, well, listen, there are trade-offs that exist and I will be sacrificing this thing over here to help you over here. And in some ways, I think from a hierarchical perspective where power dynamics are in play, asking for help, as we mentioned before, can be the default thing. But all of a sudden, there is a level playing field about hey, can, can you help me? And the person says, happy to help you, but I won't be able to do X, Y, and Z. And then there's a conversation that ensues around, wow, that thing that you're doing actually seems pretty important. Maybe I'll go somewhere else for help or, or whatever. So I think that I hope that it leads our team, and I think it already has done this, to have more courageous conversations that, again, go back to one of the principles in your book of not having reality happen to us but us choosing how we show up and how we spend our time. As you make the conversation about what's important and what are the real trade-offs being made, everybody gets to be a little more empowered because they're not just looking to hierarchy, they're looking to actual importance, what really actually matters. I think that's well said. I think in some ways when done well, principles of essentialism decenter the individual who's in power and recenter the priorities in power. Uh, and, and that I think is a powerful, it's exciting because it doesn't mean that, oh, because somebody holds a title that they are the most important, that what they say goes. 
actually it democratizes the awareness of we're a team working towards goals. We have to be thoughtful and judicious about how we spend our time on the most essential work. And so I really appreciate the way it decenters the important people in a hierarchy and recenters the most important work in, in the in the in the organization. Can you think of an interaction where somebody in a more junior position pushed back on you or pushed back on other people where you were able to see it, where the important thing was discussed and either somebody actually went with that important thing uh, or, you know, instead of it simply being hierarchical wins? I can think of five examples across our team where you know, in my excitement or something, I was like, oh my gosh, we should do this. Or, hey, I need help over here. And people on our team said, um, I'm working on something else. How important is it? When is it due by? Can I get to it later? Uh, and then it's funny, those those second order questions are so sobering for, for me. I'm like, oh, actually, you know what? The thing that they're working on is way more important and they're the ones that are way more disciplined. And so I think that this it doesn't take more than one or two questions to create some dialectics around the importance of what to prioritize. Tell me about your partners, those outside the business. You know, If you suddenly announce well, we're going to only work four days instead of five days. Of course, there's a potential uh, for being misunderstood. I think this is one of the general views that of that where essentialism can be misunderstood, where somebody just looks like, well, okay, you just want to do less. Okay, that, that does, that's not a good look in a non-essentialist world that values more hours, more stuff, you know, uh, hustle 24-7. H- how did you handle that with them? As we began to talk to some of our partners, they were incredibly supportive and and felt like this is i i think this is great i wish our team did this we heard that a number of times um from from our partners and i think it was refreshing because i was afraid to be honest will they think we're not serious will they think we won't show up and there have been times it's probably been just a few maybe two or three in the last since the beginning of the of the experiment when someone said, we really need you to call in on a Friday. And I said, okay, we'll call in on a Friday. Of course we'll do that. But it hasn't happened. And we've really tried to communicate to our clients and partners that, you know, we work a four day work week, Monday through Thursday, we don't work on Fridays. And so let's just design from the beginning um, that work week and that collaboration schedule. We had one potential partner that we were in conversations with. They came across an article um, talking about this experiment and they were concerned. They were curious about our commitment to the work, our ability to follow through, all of these things. And so I explained all of this, our process, our our thoughtfulness, uh, the third-party evaluator, how we're experimenting with it. Um, And they ultimately said, all right, we're convinced. (laughs) And so uh, I think it it was helpful for me to see that even with an initial concern or skepticism that we were able to overcome that with some very basic conversations around this is not just you know something that's we haven't been thoughtful about we're being very intentional here and we're very curious about the ways that we can give time back to our team to prioritize things that are not work essential 
And this goes back to what you've talked about, which is, you know, what's most essential is, is can be family and, and relationships outside of work. And, and how do we subordinate work into a larger context of life where we actually have the space to prioritize essential things that are outside of the workplace? Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful to hear you uh, express that um, with with an, an understanding that that time for them really is precious, really is essential, rather than maybe slightly bemoaning it, as I think someone in a non-essentialist frame might well have. My goodness, you know, I'm paying these people. Why aren't they doing more? Why aren't they working longer hours? You're saying, look, that is their most important work. And the the win-win is that if they can give correctly there, then when they come to work, they're going to be able to make a better contribution anyway. So if I get the order right here, I'm not going to lose out. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, everyone is going to win bigger. That's what I hear you saying. That's right. And then from a retention perspective, I think for our team's collective ability to practice essentialism, and I really think of it as a fitness you know, it's like going to the gym. It's something that we have to practice and work on every single day. Uh, if we can do that in an organizational context, such that people get Fridays off to go out and live audacious lives elsewhere outside of work, the retention in that organizational context can be really strong. I think from an organizational perspective, we can quantify the cost of employee turnover we can quantify the cost of loss of institutional knowledge. And I personally, as a CEO, have a vested interest in keeping our best talent within the organization. Everything you're saying to me is fascinating. It's not about how many hours you have on. Throughput isn't produced by how many hours the lights are on. <laughs> Your output is produced by how creative somebody is, how how well they can figure out what matters, how well they can create value and make contribution, all these things that we've been talking about today. I think that requires, as we talked about before, not just an individual toiling away in a world of non-essentialism or a country where non-essentialism is the language, but creating systems of people, networks of people inside organizations, inside families, inside communities that are having these courageous conversations, democratized intelligence about what's important. And I think it's through that that we're able to get there. I know by myself, I would struggle to be a lone essentialist. When I am embedded within a web of human relationships within our workplace, everyone trying, experimenting, making mistakes, asking the right questions, challenging me, that friction, that engagement, that leaning in creates the spark of, of really what's most important. And so I think that in some ways, the best way to do this work is to do it together. I believe, based on my own experience now in the years of teaching essentialism and working with people, that essentialism is either a collective sport or not at all. Right. And I think it's been... It's been really good for our team. Obviously, this year has been a year of so much tumult, um, both externally and, of course, internally. And I think uh, our our team is is in a really healthy place. And I, if if you were to ask me 
you know, at the end of this year or the beginning of the year, this is going to be a year where the mental health of humans is going to be extremely stressed. And that mental health challenge will be a major risk for the organization. What are the ways that you might address that? I would be very interested in solutions around caring for the mental health of our team. And I think this is, a, of course, just one way to do it. And we have said, you know, the four-day work week is is just one example of essentialism. Yeah, I, I think that you capture so many interesting things to me. The forcing function of a four-day work week combined with essentialism makes it tangible and real. It's the essential becomes the guiding factor. And that's really what I, I, I think this experiment is about. And it's an absolutely uh, perfect description for a podcast called What's Essential. So I really thank you so much uh, for being here, for sharing this. And, and I hope to have you on again uh, down the road as we look at what the experiment looks like uh, a few more months out from where you're at right now. Greg, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review there, especially write a comment so that other people can find us and we can continue to grow the momentum of this essentialist tribe. It's been amazing to see what's happened already. This show is of, by, and for that essentialist community. And so please share with me through the website at either gregmcewan.com or essentialism.com your questions, your stories, your experiences with this podcast, with the book Essentialism, with your experiences. We can continue to expand and make a difference in the world. Uh, remember, if you don't remember anything else from today, to ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else.